Open your Bibles, if you will, to uh, Proverbs chapter 3. And uh, I have been loving this series on Proverbs and loving getting to sit under the Word, uh, being faithfully handled by uh, good brothers. And it's uh, my pleasure to get to take a part in this series. So let me uh, read to you two passages from the book of Proverbs on the topic of alcohol. We're going to think about alcohol this morning. Uh, We're going to think about alcohol because it's one of the topics both commended and warned about in the book of Proverbs. And with something as uh, graciously given as wine and strong drink, and something as dangerous as wine and strong drink, we're really in danger unless we're guided by God's Word. God's Word is necessary to guide us and lead us in every single portion of our lives. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 through 10, really a giving verse, but it's interesting what the result of generous giving is in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. So let me read that to you. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Produce. How do you say that? I don't remember. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. So one of God's gifts to His generous people, vats bursting with wine. And then on the other side of the spectrum... Proverbs chapter 23, verse 29, we get a caricature, not a caricature, there's nothing exaggerated here, we get a portrait of the drunkard. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we come before You, and we ask You that You would lead us into all truth by Your Holy Spirit. We ask You, Lord God, I was overwhelmed this week thinking of all the different places Your people would be coming from in terms of attitudes and experiences with alcohol, I pray that you'd help me just to put your word clearly before your people and in such a way that we're helped to walk greater, in greater and greater paths of faithfulness. We plead with you for the help of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it might seem strange to you to hear me say, uh, as I already said as I read the Scripture, that the Proverbs speaks both positively and negatively about alcohol, especially if you grew up in a Southern Baptist church. 
It may be very strange for you to hear me talk about the Bible speaking positively about alcohol. For most uh, Southern Baptist churches, alcohol has had no part in any sort of earthy spirituality, the kind we're exploring in the book of Proverbs. Southern Baptist churches have not been churches that think of alcohol as something that has to be navigated on a regular basis, like money or parenting or work, because the general attitude has been one of total abstinence, of completely staying away from what is often referred to as beverage alcohol. Southern Baptists have not thought of alcohol as having any positive benefits beyond some limited medicinal uses. No, for most of Southern Baptist history, and actually to this very day, Southern Baptists have been mostly, have almost been universally against the use and enjoyment of any a kind of alcohol. Reporter and pastor David Roach reports that Southern Baptists have, long, have a long history and near universal opposition uh, to the use and enjoyment of what, what I called beverage alcohol. And this really goes back before even to the dawn of our denomination. Uh, one of the great movements of God uh, that came, up, came into America is often called the Second Great Awakening. In the Second Great Awakening, where there's revivals happening throughout the United States, especially up in the Northeast, uh, those revivals are often accompanied by a strong temperance movement, a strong abstinence movement towards alcohol. And Southern Baptist churches, or what would become Southern Baptist churches, were deeply influenced by that movement. In 1832, I won't get into Southern Baptist history too deeply, but this is before Southern Baptist or even a denomination, but in 1832, uh, the Charleston Baptist Association, one of the associations that would eventually be part of the SBC, passed a resolution expressing pleasure with the progress of temperance and of entire abstinence in the use of ardent spirits according to the association's minutes. Uh, if you've ever uh, driven through a dry county or lived in a dry county in the United States, you probably have Southern Baptists to thank for that reality. In fact, there was one a researcher who pointed out that there's a direct correlation between the presence of Southern Baptist churches and dry counties uh, throughout the United States. Dr. Albert Moeller has said, from 1859, at the founding of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, faculty supported temperance efforts and campaigns to keep regions dry from alcohol. So all I'm trying to say is, this is a Southern Baptist church, and throughout the history of the Southern Baptist church, abstinence has been the nearly unanimous consensus of SBC leaders and members. According to Baptist historian Greg Wills, uh, the standard from the 1800s is that a minister who drank alcoholic beverages was disqualified to preach. So that standard and the general opinion have been quite consistent over a long period of time. <clears throat> so it might be strange to hear me speak about the positive blessings of wine and strong drink. Although it might seem strange, it shouldn't seem too strange because honestly, any kind of open reading of the Bible is going to make a person face verses that speak positively about alcohol. Uh, one pastor has actually said, if, if, if your pastor tells you that all of the wine in the Bible can't get you drunk, well then how do you trust him on anything? 
There's simply no way that all of the passages about wine in the Scriptures are referring to wine that can't get you drunk or are, it doesn't seem to me, can even be possibly teaching that abstinence is God's will for all His people at all time. So I think we should listen to our Baptist forefathers. You shouldn't just see the history of your church in front of you and just say, they're a bunch of fools and idiots and we figured it out in 2022. That's always a foolish kind of approach. The Bible tells us, remember your leaders, those who spoke the Word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That should be our general posture towards great men and women of God who've gone before us. If we're in doubt, we should slip into the old paths. And at the same time, when you look at Acts chapter 17, verse 11, you get the Apostle Paul commending the Berean Christians because the Berean Christians were so noble because they received the Word of God with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now just think of this. Paul just preached a sermon to you and your response is, well, let me go check. And Paul says, I love it. That's exactly what you should be doing. Because at the end of the day, the authority that we live under in every area of life is not vested even in our greatest teachers, but in the Scriptures themselves. And so we have to continually go back to God's Word. And so I want to think with you this morning from the Scriptures, specifically from Proverbs, about alcohol. And what's wonderful about studying Proverbs is Proverbs, imagine this, strikes the exact same note as the rest of the Bible. Proverbs lays the same tracks that we find consistently throughout the Scriptures. And those two truths, those twin truths that we hear over and over and over through the Bible when it comes to alcohol are namely this, that wine, I'm going to use wine or strong drink as sort of a a summary term for all alcoholic beverages, that wine is a gift that can bless and it's a gift that can destroy. Those are really my two points this morning. The wine is a great gift that can bless and wine is a gift that can destroy. And believers need to understand it in both of those capacities as they want to walk in the fullness of God's Word. So, First, wine is a gift that can bless. The first mention of wine in the book of Proverbs is positive. In fact, it's a, po- it's a promise that if you give to the Lord, He will give you lots of wine. It almost sounds like a health and wealth prosperity uh, promise. It's not that. We know the, prom- the Proverbs are not... Um, Uh, health and wealth promises that we claim and name it and claim it. Rather, they give us the general patterns of this life. You work hard and it will gradually increase wealth. You uh, stay away from the immoral woman and you will stay faithful to your wife. These are the patterns of life that God has given to us in His Word. And here we're told in Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, honor the Lord with your wealth. So give Him what you make. Give Him from your bounty. Then your, oh, sorry, with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. 
To honor God with your wealth and produce was actually commanded in the book of Deuteronomy. There's actually an amazing uh, sequence there in uh, Deuteronomy 26 where it tells us that the Jews, after they were saved out of Egypt, were regularly to go to the temple and they were to go to the priest and then they were to give this wonderful confession of faith. They would say, a wandering Aramean was my father. That's Abraham. And he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. There he became a great nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror and signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship the Lord your God. Basic to Jewish worship, basic to the worship of the people of God was, you saved me. You saved me from slavery. You saved us when we called to you. The reason we're in a land that's got any milk and any honey, the reason we're in a land that's got any bread and it's got any wine is because you put us here. And so now, Lord, we want to give you but your own. We want to hand back over to you the first fruits of what you've given to us. And so it's an act of worship. We're talking about the worship of the Old Testament people of God. And what is God's response to not the carnal Christian? but the worshiping Jew. So I, I love that. I'm going to give you bread and wine. Lots of bread and lots of wine. Really has a picture of the kind of bounty that he would care for his people with. And of course, you can't get in your head, okay, so if I worship, I'll get wine. God's not a genie. And remember, these are the Proverbs. The very next verse in Proverbs 3 says, God will discipline you sometimes. And so we're, talk, we're talking again about the tracks in which life ordinarily walks along. And there's this pattern that those who are worshiping people are given a bounty. And that bounty from God can include the gift of wine. Now I just want to say this. If wine is inherently evil, then it is beneath God to give it to his people. God does not tempt people. God does not cause people to sin. And so if wine were in and of itself sinful and wicked, it would be sinful and wicked for God to give it to his people. Now someone might say, well, Ryan, I'm aware that in Proverbs chapter 3, it actually says he will fill your vats with new wine. And new wine is not alcoholic wine. Well, that's not true. It's just not true. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 11, it says, wine and new wine, which take away the understanding. So the new wine and wine in general was the kind of wine that if abused, could lead to drunkenness. So God is promising to fill the vats of his people. He's proverbing to fill the vats of his people with new wine, a kind of wine that can make you drunk, though it's certainly not ever God's intention that that wine should lead to drunkenness. But that is the wine he's given. Maybe you remember Acts chapter 2, 
In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit has fallen upon God's people. They're speaking in tongues, speaking other languages, and the people all around them go, oh, they're drinking new wine! So in Acts chapter 2, did the people assume that new wine was not something that could get you drunk? No, they actually understood that the new wine was the kind that could cause drunkenness. I'm going to say this a million times over. The fact that wine can cause drunkenness is no endorsement, as we'll see, of God ever, ever approving of His people indulging in drunkenness. It is absolutely forbidden. I'm simply trying to take away the idea that there were certain kinds of wine that weren't, well, wine, that had the capacity to make a person drunk. Now, why would God give such generous portions of something so dangerous? Why would God give such generous portions of something so dangerous? Well, the first thing I would just say to that is, let's back up and say, that's actually a characteristic of all God's works. God is the one who fills this world with food that can be used for gluttony. The, the, the sex that's currently destroying the culture we're in is at root God's own gift. It is the work of God to rain good gifts on the just and the unjust, not so they can ever be abused. The abuse is always in us and never in Him. But our abuse does not hinder His generous giving of all kinds of good things. So why would God give such generous portions of something so dangerous? The answer is simple. Because God considers wine to be a tremendous blessing. In Psalm 104, we are told that God gave wine to gladden the heart of man. Psalm 104, verse 14 through 15. Drunkenness is not the only effect wine can have on a person. There's also a gladness that wine can bring to the human heart. In fact, that gladness is actually meant to be a little appetizer of heaven. If you never drink wine in this life, which is fully acceptable, you will drink wine in the next. And that's because Isaiah 25 tells us that, that heaven is, is pictured for us as a mountain where there's no more death, all the best meats, and the best wines. This is a picture of what heaven is for us on, in Isaiah 25. Uh, you might remember from our study in Isaiah, if you remember, you can go back that far, that mountain was a, a picture of God's salvation. In Isaiah 25, 6, it says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. So, we're told that wine can gladden the heart of man. We're told that it's an appetizer of the wine that will be ours in heaven. And then, of course, it's not incidental that the Lord Jesus, now this will be a shock to some of you, did not command us to take 
bread and grape juice when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But He commanded us to take bread and wine as part of this ongoing picture of how He's giving us joy. He's inviting us into joy. The, the wine is both the symbol of the wrath that Christ drank and also of the joy that's coming to us on the last day. Jesus said as He handed out the cup, drink from it, all of you. For this wine is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So I'm just trying to give a little biblical overview of wine here for a second. What do we got? We got God giving it to those not who are carnal, but who are worshiping, faithful worshipers being given wine. Then you've got God saying, this will make your heart glad. Then, then God is telling us, you want to think about heaven? Let me think of something I can give you to help you think about heaven. Wine. You want to remember me and my covenant? Let me give you something that will help you remember me and my covenant. I'm giving you this gift of wine. Now, three things. I'm going to have to do this way quicker than I want to. But three things which the gift of wine can produce in the body of Christ. Reverence, gladness, and relief. Reverence, gladness, and relief. In Deuteronomy 14, there's this command for a particular kind of offering to the Lord. It's always stunned me. I remember first noticing it when I preached through Deuteronomy years ago. But there's this command, Deuteronomy 14, for a particular kind of offering before the Lord. Deuteronomy 14.22 says, you shall tithe all the field of your seed. So everything you planted, bring 10% of it in to worship me. And then it says, uh, you shall tithe a tenth of your, of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place where he will choose, that's Jerusalem, to make his name dwell, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil. So he says, gather up 10% of all your crops, all your wine, all your oil. Okay, what do we do with it? Eat it. Come to Jerusalem and have a big feast with 10% of all your grain and all your wine and all your oil. So, Later on in the passage, I wish I had time to go to this, it says, if you, if, you, if you have to travel a long way to get to Jerusalem, he says, just sell your grain and your wine and your oil and come down with cash. And then it says, and then buy whatever your heart desires. And, says, and he says, eat it before me. So it's like you're, you're under divine obligation to buy your favorite food and drink and eat it in worship to God. Now, if all you've ever experienced is stuffy worship services, you're not dealing with the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is like, I want a feast. I want a feast before me. All your grain, lots of it. All your wine, lots of it. All your oil, lots of it. Bring it on down and then eat it before me. But then this is the killer verse. This verse blows my mind. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd. Kill the fattened calf, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God 
always. Feasting results in fearing. Revelry leads to reverence. The very thing we're told will be destroyed if we enjoy such things is actually the thing God thinks can be created if we enjoy those gifts rightly to His glory. When I, my wife and I first got married, I, I made her very miserable. And one of the ways I made her miserable was just by just how spiritual I was. I was just such a spiritual guy. You know, we would just drive around and we'd be looking at God's creation and she'd be like, look at this, it's amazing, it's incredible. My wife has an amazing, contagious love for nature. She's pointed at all these great things and I'm like trying to think about the Bible, trying to think about scriptural things. She's just like, you're... She didn't say you're a loser, but you know she probably should have said I was a loser. And 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 there's a sense in which I'm thinking all these good created things they're going to distract me from God. What a demented Gnostic view of the Christian life. Instead, the good things of this life, including wine used in moderation, are meant to make us in awe of the goodness of God towards us. And they are not to decrease reverence, but to increase reverence in our souls. So wine leads to reverence. It also leads to gladness. Psalm 104, I already read this, says um, that wine gladdens the heart of man. It's a wonderful story that illustrates this from Genesis 43. Remember, Joseph gathers all his brothers and he serves them up a bunch of food and wine. And then Genesis 43, 34 says, they drank and were merry with him. And uh, one translation, ironically the translation sponsored by the Southern Baptist Convention, says they drank and were drunk with him, but almost every other translation chooses something much more joyful, much more pleasant. They were merry with him. W. Brown writes, they drank and became fully content. I like the way John Calvin describes the scene. He says these men drank, but with an honest and moderate liberality. An honest and moderate liberality. And sometimes when people start talking positively about alcohol, others will get nervous and think, all you're trying to do is justify drunkenness. That is not at all. You're, I'm going to say the strongest things against drunkenness. You've never heard me say anything positive about drunkenness in your life Drunkenness is a vile sin that will lead you to hell. But there is an honest and moderate liberality that makes merry and that these men were enjoying with their brother Joseph. Third is relief. Relief. And this is actually from Proverbs again. This is actually a, a woman speaking about alcohol. Proverbs 31, you might remember, is Lemuel's mother speaking. It's one of the portions of Proverbs that's gathered from Solomon, but actually written by Lemuel's mom. And it's, it's Lemuel's mom tells her son, the king, in Proverbs 31, 6 and 7, give beer to one who is dying and wine to one whose life is bitter. Let him drink so he can forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. Now, I know... A quick reading about that could sound like, hey, let the poor get blackout drunk so they can forget their poverty. Of course, nothing like that would be consistent with God's Word. What's simply being said is she's saying, hey, you're the king. You got vats of wine. 
You've got poor people suffering in your kingdom. Give them some of the joys of the earth. Let them partake in this. Let them enjoy. Don't like their life just misery, but share in the abundance of all the good gifts that God has given to you. So wine is a gift that can be a real blessing. It can create a feasting that can create fear and reverence. It can create gladness when it's used in a moderate liberality. And it also is a gift that can truly create a kind of relief. And finally, my second point, and by finally I mean we're just warming up here. Uh, wine is a gift that can destroy. It's a gift that can destroy. As delightful and as celebratory as the Bible can be about wine and strong drink, it can be equally reproving, rebuking, and devastatingly realistic about the disastrous consequences of alcohol abuse. This book that shows us the way to wisdom says, and here's one of the Proverbs I want to quote to you, Proverbs 20, verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So notice here, wine and strong drink are not condemned in and of themselves, but they, there's a great awareness that they can lead astray. So much so that wine is called a mocker and drink is called a brawler, and they can lead astray. And it says the one who is lead astray is not wise. So there's no way to be under the influence of alcohol and drunkenness and walk in biblical wisdom at the same time. The two are mutually exclusive. They cancel each other out. So listen, the one who is drunk, the one who is a brawler, the one who is a mocker, the one who is given to wine, given to beer, that one is led astray from what? From wisdom. Now think about wisdom from what you've learned over the last, say, six weeks. The kind of wisdom that keeps your marriage together. You can't hold on to it when you're drunk. You will wind up flirting with the girl you shouldn't flirt with. You will wind up not having the strength to resist pornography. Your, your, your inhibitions will be reduced to the point where you cannot walk in wisdom. You, you will not be able to keep yourself from saying the stupid thing that gets you punched because it's a brawler. You cannot walk in wisdom. The, Ephesians says it as plain as day. Do not be drunk of wine, which is, which leads to debauchery. It's a slippery slope you will go down because the resistance you need from the Holy Spirit to fight sin is vacated when you come under the control of alcohol. Drunkenness and wisdom are utterly mutually exclusive. If you think you're walking in biblical wisdom and slipping a little drunkenness into your life, you are only fooling yourself. You are walking in the way of a fool, and the fool is a person who's given themselves to a life of horrible consequences. You know, we've, one of the, my favorite illustrations we've heard, I can't remember if it was Pastor Johnny, or Pastor Donnie, who brought it up first. But the whole idea that Proverbs teaches us how to drive the right way down God's one-way streets. I love that illustration. That's what Proverbs does. It teaches us how to drive the right way down God's one-way street. Well, 
Drunkenness will make you a drunk driver, even if you never get behind the wheel of a car. It will make you a drunk driver down God's one-way streets. You, you might go the same direction God's goes, but swerving in a way that harms you, or you might actually wind up 180-ing and going the wrong way down God's one-way street. You will suffer harm. The harm that comes from folly if you give any place in your life to drunkenness. Drunkenness is to be absolutely 100% excluded from the Christian life. There is no place for it at all. And actually, we're given an amazing picture of what it looks like to become a drunk. I could quote you all kinds of statistics now uh, from scientific sources on what drunkenness does to people, how it destroys people's lives, but I don't need to look up all those statistics. I've got a pretty amazing picture of drunkenness in a 3,000-year-old book right here. Think about how accurate this is. Look at, look at uh, chapter 23 with me. Chapter 23. Chapter 23 and verse 29. So the first thing this passage does, Proverbs 23, 29, is it starts asking, who are we looking at here? Who are we looking at? And the answer will be pretty clear. We're looking at the drunk. And the first question is, who has woe? Woe, of course, means damnation. It's kind of like we might say, whose life is hell on earth? Who has sorrow? Who needs a million country songs with a tear in their beard to kind of keep them going? Who has strife? Whose relationship with their boss is messed up? Relationship with their wife is messed up? Relationship with their kids is messed up? Who's got strain everywhere? Who has complaining? Ironically, contentment and drunkenness do not walk together. That merry moderation can walk together with contentment. But drunkenness has no fellowship with contentment. Who has wounds without cause? Where did I get that bruise? Did I get hit last night? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Look at himself in the mirror. Trying to wipe away the drunkenness. It's those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine, a million brand new cocktails always before them. Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go down to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. Now, this does not mean if you notice that wine's red, you should go, I cannot see you. <laughs> this is not... This is not what's being said. We're using poetic language. This is what goes on when people glorify alcohol. It's the guys at the, at the kegger party chanting, go, go, go. It's like, like something glorious is happening here other than that you're being emasculated by poison. This is the fancy cocktail parties and the women trying to look sophisticated with their long-stemmed wine glasses. This is the 50-year-old uh, guys acting like they're players on the fourth glass of bourbon. This is the lingering long and glorifying it and celebrating it and being seduced by it. If you're in that situation, run. Run. Depart from that. In fact, what, what Proverbs is doing here, it's actually fascinating. It's the same way the Proverbs argues against adultery. I don't know if you remember this, but in Proverbs chapter 5, the logic goes, hey, she's got honey lips. 
and smooth words. But in the end, she's bitter as wormwood. That's exactly the kind of logic that's going on in this passage. So what it says here is this. Do not look at wine when it's red. Don't get all caught up in how beautiful it is and elegant it is when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. Verse 32, in the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. See the way it works? Just like just the adultery passage. Don't get caught up in her beauty. She'll kill you. Don't get caught up in how elegant and sophisticated or powerful or liquid courage you're, in, you're imbibing. Don't get caught up in that. It'll be a snake that bites you. In the end, it bites like a serpent, stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things. What did I just see? Hallucinations, delusions of grandeur. One of the strange things alcohol often sees is how awesome you are. It's delusional. Your heart will utter perverse things. You will find yourself cussing more. You'll find yourself saying sexually explicit things that ought not to be said because your inhibitions are down. In fact, you're like, well, how can you tell the difference between merriment and drunkenness? I'll tell you how. The one always leads to godlessness. It always leads to godlessness. You're with a friend and they're starting to say things that are risque, say things that involve cussing. No, 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 you, you've stepped over a line. You need to repent. You, you're, 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 not in, you're not anywhere near the good gift God's talking about. You're in drunkenness. You're in sin. This next verse, the poetry is kind of hard to put together, but it's something like, you'll be like a guy who's seasick on a ship, laying down on the bottom of the ship, and then you'll be, find yourself sleeping up in the crow nest, crow's nest on top of the mast. You'll be like the one who lies down, verse 34, in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on top of a mast. And then anyone who's been around drunkenness has heard this guy. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. And then even though there's all this abuse, all this self-destruction, there's also bondage. Because look at the end of verse 35. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. There are men and women in this room who, behind closed doors, this is you. You may go to church every week, but more than one person's hidden a drinking problem and gone to church every week. You may have been wiping away those red eyes this morning and putting the visine in your eyes just to make it to church. And I want to plead with you to repent. I want to plead with you to walk away from the drunkenness that will destroy your soul. There are others here who you're in a halfway house or you're in a, you're in a program to get you off of drinking. You're, 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 trying to, you're trying to sober up your life. That's good. But here's the thing. You're going to need something more than just a resolve to be sober. What you need, the Bible says, is you need to be born again. You see, God's answer for drunkenness is not just abstinence. God's answer for drunkenness is Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ has come into the world and his first miracle was to turn water into wine. And the reason he turned water into wine is he came to say in the words of Michael Card, I am bringing the, I'm replacing the joy of the lifeless living with joy, with my joy. I'm the source of joy. I'm the ultimate wine your soul needs. You can drink all the Jesus you want. It will never do anything but make you better morally pure, deeply, more deeply aware of your forgiveness. Jesus Christ came. You don't know where you got the bruises you got, but he took scars on himself and he knows just why he has them. He got them to pay for your redemption. He got them to pay for your sins. And he rose from the grave to give you new life. And that new life includes the power of self-control by the Spirit. That power of new life means that you can begin to walk in the gifts that he's given without abusing them. Now, new Christians, there's often where we need to take a, a long season where we don't even touch certain things. That's very wise. But the end goal of Christ's salvation is that by the Spirit, a self-control is built that can in, enjoy the good gifts God gives in moderation, thanking him for what he gives, and never abusing what he gives. Well, there's so much more I could say, but I'm going to skip to the end here. Try to work out a few pastoral applications. It's my anticipation that not everyone here has been fully persuaded by what I've just said. There'll be some who hear me and say, okay, I see that, but I still think the better course for me is to stay away from alcohol. And there, there can be all kinds of reasons for that. There can be, I'm not persuaded. I'm just not persuaded. I think the Bible doesn't give me that liberty. And how should the body respond to such a person? Well, Romans 14 makes it very clear. We should be so thankful for their heart to honor God and love God. We should see that they are not using liberty they don't have. And we should celebrate how they're walking in holiness under the Lord. And there should be no sort of pressure to get with the program and have a drink. Nothing like that at all. Should be the furthest thing from us. It's the first thing I'd say. Or there may be somebody who said, I can't touch it because I've, I've touched it and destroyed my life and I know I can't go back right now. Amen. Amen. The Bible says that if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And so if there's something in your life that you don't have the power to deal with, don't deal with it. And the body ought to be cheering you on, celebrating that, not putting any kind of crazy pressure on you, not kind of putting any pressure on you uh, to enjoy something that might cause you to sin because sinning is the problem. Amen. What about to the person who's like, I like what you're saying. This sounds good. That's great. What should their response be? Well, their first their response should be to take heed lest they fall. 
There's no one above the dangers. There's no one above the dangers. And if a brother or sister were to call us out and say, hey, you know, it looks like maybe a bit too much, a bit too often. There should be nothing in us. Like, Why are you asking me that? Me? Never me. The minute it's never you, it's totally you. And so there ought to be a willingness to receive correction from God's Word and reproof and rebuke. Now what if you're someone who's like, I, th- I think what you're saying is right. I think what you're saying is right. That we can enjoy these things and celebrate these things in moderation. That sounds good, but I got, I got holdups in my heart. What, what do you do there? You strengthen yourself according to God's Word. You shape your conscience by God's Word. So you go back over these passages. Is it always sinful? No, God gave it for gladness. Is is it always wicked? No, God actually gives it as a result of giving very often. These are wonderful, wonderful things that God gives. Someone might say, I think in this drunken culture, it's just a bad witness to ever drink. That's a legitimate decision. You can go there. Uh, The Apostle Paul, when he went to Corinth, didn't take any money for his preaching because that culture was so loaded down with charlatans who took money for their preaching that he said, in this culture, I don't take money for my preaching. That can be a good decision. At the same time, I'll just suggest this to you. What's the best witness to a licentious culture? A complete abstinence? or a spirit-wrought, supernatural self-control. I keep noticing about you that you enjoy God's goods, gifts, and you never abuse them. Tell me about that. That's an amazing possibility for witness. Some of you may say, I agree with you. It's right and true that alcohol is a good gift, but it's still best to teach Christians that they must abstain. It's just safer. Or if like most of the Southern Baptist Convention, you make those who work for you and study in your schools abstain from alcohol, let me remind you this. It's a dangerous thing to get drunk. It's also a dangerous thing to fight sin by adding rules and regulations that are not in the Bible. Paul reminds us in the Colossians, do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. That's sort of like, I won't even touch the thing that could ever lead me to sin. He says, that's not an effective way to fight sin. He says, he says those man-made regulations have the appearance of wisdom, but that's all it is. It's just an appearance of wisdom. In our seminaries, our mission boards, Our church planting boards, we should not be teaching or modeling that the sin of drunkenness is defeated by vows to abstain that have no authority from the Word of God. We should be teaching that the power of the Spirit is able to make men sober and sober-minded. Now, I'll tell you this. As a recent graduate of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, (laughs) only took me 22 years, I never touched alcohol when I was enrolled in classes at Southern. There's that stipulation. I don't think it's wise. I don't think it's good. But I also could have gone to a different school. 
And so when I signed something saying I wouldn't do that, I didn't do that. Amen. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever been hallelujahed for that before, but thank you. Thank you. And I would encourage you that if you were under a similar obligation, that you don't just sort of slip into a corner and break the rules. But if you're so convicted that you ought not to obey this, that you make that public rather than a sneaky thing you do in your life. Lastly, we should really think in the coming months and years as a congregation about whether or not grape juice should be what we fill our cups with each Sunday when we take the Lord's Supper. Uh, this isn't the beginning of some new initiative from the elders. This is me talking on wine and so feeling like I should address this. And this would ultimately, at the end of the day, be something we would think about together. So don't wait for anything new next week and certainly do enjoy the Lord's Supper with grape juice this morning. I mean it with all my heart. But our Lord served wine and we are in danger of being wiser than Him when we switch to grape juice. The wine He gave was deep and rich with biblical imagery. It points to gladness of heart, to the joy of heaven, and to the cup of wrath that He drank. We would do well to think about this as a congregation, whether or not it would be better to conform our practice more closely to God's Word some will say there are alcoholics who if they taste the wine will go on and get drunk. I cannot deny that possibility, but honestly, do you really think the Lord never thought of that? Were there no drunks in the New Testament church? No drunkards who were saved? I don't believe a sip of the cup of blessing given to build up the body of Christ is going to be what destroys all sobriety in those who pursue it. The more we follow the New Testament practice in everything we can, the more I believe we can expect New Testament results. So, praying that God will give you all wisdom in how to apply this into all situations, I'll just say one more time. Alcohol is a great gift. And it is a great gift with real danger. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your gifts. We thank you for your truth. Lord, I pray that our application of this sermon would be above everything marked by holiness and wisdom and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.